Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. So if you are uh, visiting, I want to welcome everyone to our uh, Wednesday night Bible study. We are, of course, making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And tonight we come to the end of chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the last three verses of this incredible chapter. And uh, as you can see, the title of our lesson is Be Perfect. Now, Tonight, we get a chance to look at one of, I think, the most perplexing and interesting and sometimes confusing uh, verses in the entire Bible, and that is the last verse of the uh, chapter. Uh, But before we get there, I want to just remind you very quickly of what this chapter has been all about. This entire chapter, Jesus, and I've said this over and over again, that Jesus is describing the character of a Christian. Okay, He's describing the character of a Christian. Now, I just want to very quickly go over the things that he's told us that a Christian, the type of characteristics that a Christian should have in their life. He tells us a Christian should be poor in spirit. They should mourn over their sin. They should be, uh, some translations say meek, but it's the same word for gentle. Um, They should hunger and thirst for righteousness. They should be merciful. They should be pure in heart. They should be peacemakers. They're going to be persecuted. He goes on to say after the Beatitudes, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then when he gets to, when he tells, he begins us to give us illustrations of what the righteousness of a Christian should look like. And he tells us this, they're, they're not angry, they're not lustful, uh, they're faithful to their marriages, they're truthful, they turn the other cheek, they go the extra mile, they give away their possessions, they're incredibly generous, and they love not just their friends and their neighbors, but they love even their enemies. Now, you guys, uh, you know, you come in here for about 45 minutes on a Wednesday night, um, and, and you sit down, and you've listened to, we've been about six months in here, and you've been listening to these. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I spend hours and hours with this, sometimes eight hours, sometimes 10 hours, sometimes 12 hours with each of these subjects, and at the end of the week, this is how I feel, discouraged. I, I, I don't know how you listen to these words and not feel discouraged. Because I know when I list all of that stuff up there, I fail so badly. I, I'm not the, the, the kind of man that I want to be. I'm not the kind of man that I can be. I'm not the man that I should be. So I, I'm just discouraged when <laughs> thinking, man, I, this, the bar is set so high, and I continue over and over again to fail to reach that Bar, But that does not change the fact, okay? Jesus is not telling us how to act in order to be saved. That's not what he's telling us. He's telling us how a saved person acts, okay? 
Now, tonight, I've been saying that for weeks, that he's describing a Christian. Tonight, I'm going to prove it to you. In fact, I'm going to prove it to you twice. Here's the first way. I want to look at two verses from last week, Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 to 45. Jesus said this, we covered it last week, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be, in the next three words, are not like your God who's in heaven. That's not what he says. He does not say so that you may be like your God who is in heaven. You know what he says? So that you may be what? Like your father. So that you may be like your father. Listen, I've, you've heard me say this before. I've driven by church signs. And on that sign, it'll say, we're all children of God. Sister Teresa's got a, a famous saying where she says, no color, no religion, no nationality should come between us. We are all children of God. Folks, that is not true. That is not scriptural. God is not a father to unbelievers. Now, like it or not, he is their God. Like it or not, he is the, their creator. Like it or not, he is their great lawgiver. And one day, like it or not, he will be their judge. But he is not their father. It is only the Christian. It is only the one who is born again. It is the only the man or the woman who is regenerated and indwelt by the Spirit that have the right to call him father. Listen to John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, we're not, not it, just because you're a human being doesn't make you a child of God. You must, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. It is only believers who can call him Abba, Father. Listen to Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So, if I've received Christ, if I've believed in Christ, I've been born again, it tells me right here, I, by virtue of that, I have received His Spirit. I have the Spirit of God. He dwells in me and with me. And you see, folks, that is what makes me different. I'm not, that in itself is what makes me special. That in itself is what gives me power and makes me capable of doing things that a normal, natural man or woman cannot do. It's that, that I have the Spirit of God. Listen, I'm going to give you two scriptures. Romans 5, 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. How do I love my enemies the way God loves His enemies? I do it through the Spirit who's poured out in me. He, he, makes that, he makes me capable of doing those things. I can't do them within myself. I won't do them within myself. I can only do them because I have the Spirit of God. Listen to Romans 8, 2-4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Here's my point, folks, and I've said this before. Jesus didn't come to create new laws. He came to create new people. He didn't come to say, here's a new set of rules. He came to create new creations, 
people that are born again, that are indwelt by His Spirit, people who can do the things that He's called us to do. So, when you read all those things, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who turn the other cheek, who go the extra mile, who, who, who love their enemies, not only can you do those things as a child of God, you are expected to do those things. In fact, I want to look at verses 46 and 47 and show you that. Jesus is speaking. He just told them to love their enemies. And He says this, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. Now, let's go back to that culture. You'll remember He's sitting there. He's, he's, he's teaching Jews. He's preaching to the children of Israel. And in their culture... There were two people they really hated. And, the, and, and number two on the list was tax collectors. Tax collectors were Jews who basically had sold out to the Roman government. In that day, just like today, you can buy a McDonald's franchise or you can buy a Chick-fil-A franchise. In that day, you could buy a tax franchise. You could go to the Roman government and pay them a certain amount of money and they would give you charge over a certain area to collect taxes. And all they cared about was that they got their share. They got what was coming to them. What you collected over and above that, that was up to you. And so these, these, these Jewish men who had already sold out to the Romans, they would literally rob and steal and extort from their own brothers and sisters, from their own community, from their own people. And so to the Jews, fellow Jews, they were seen as Criminals, they were all very, really rich because they just got rich. And you see that with Matthew, you see that with Zacchaeus. But they were absolutely hated by the community at large. They were seen as traitors and, and criminals. And you see, the Jews thought they had fulfilled the scripture, love your neighbor, because they love people just like them. Remember we talked about that last week? When they read the scripture that said, love your neighbor, they thought, well, I need to love other Jews. I need to love people that look like me and act like me and talk like me. And if I do that, I'm fulfilling the Scripture. And Jesus said, so what? Even traitorous criminals do that. What's, what's special about you? What's different about you? Nothing. The worst of humanity does that. And he gives them a second one because if there was anybody they hated worse than tax collectors, it was Gentiles. Jesus said this, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Now you guys know Gentiles are anybody that's not a Jew. And to the Jews, they looked at the Gentiles as unbelievers. They were pagans. They were idolaters. They were outside the grace and the love of God. They were the lowest of humanity. It was the Jews who were the chosen people. And, and so they thought, once again, they, they're, we're righteous because we love people like us. And, and, and Jesus is saying, so what? Even the pagans do that. You're no different than anybody else. What's being inferred here is that are you different? If you're really different, you're going to act different. If you're really different, then you're going to love people that just the normal people in society will not love. So not only can we do it because we have the Spirit of God, we are obviously expected to do it. So here's the question that everybody in here has to ask themselves. You can do it. You should do it. 
But are you doing it? Are you doing it? See, here's the question everybody needs to ask. And I'm not going to answer it for you. I've got to ask it of myself. Do I love any differently from someone who's not saved? Am I loving anybody in my life any differently than someone who's not saved? See, how you answer that question really points to whether the Spirit of God is residing in your life. Because if He's there, if He's poured out the love of God in your heart, you can't help but do it. You're going to have to do it. You may struggle, sure. You're not perfect. But if you're not even trying, if you're just settled in with your clique and your people and, again, those that look like you and talk like you and believe like you and act like you, and that's, you're not doing anything any different than the lowest of the low. Now, let's turn to verse 48. The very last verse of this great chapter. Jesus says this, Therefore, therefore, in light of all these things that I've said, you must be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, before we go any further, I need to know, does he really mean what he said? Now, the Greek word there is teleos. Now, teleos comes from the word telos, which means goal or purpose. So teleos basically means somebody who's reached a goal. They've, they've fulfilled their purpose. And in the New Testament, it can be translated several different ways. For example, it's sometimes translated mature. The idea would be you got a kid or a child, and they've grown up into adulthood. They've, they've reached their goal. They're, they're mature. They're complete. They're, they're, they're full grown. So many times in the New Testament, you'll see that word actually translated as mature or complete or full grown. And some people will try to soften the meaning of this verse. I can't tell you how many times I read that this week. That, well, Jesus doesn't mean perfect. He means mature. Well, you read that and tell me, does that make any sense? Therefore, you must be mature as your heavenly Father is mature. Does that make any sense to anybody? It don't to me. God's never been immature that he had to grow up and become mature. God's never been incomplete, that he had to grow up, right? That's not what he's saying. Folks, that is the right translation. He meant exactly what he said. Therefore, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this brings us to the second question. <laughs> okay, what in the world does he mean by that, right? Um there's got to be some kind of hidden meaning, meaning or something, right? Because he doesn't really mean that he wants us to be perfect. Well, let's go back to Matthew 5.20, a verse that we've looked at over and over and over again. Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We've said it. I, I Hopefully I won't say this anymore. But there's a group of men in that community who are as holy and as knowledgeable and as moral and as respected as anybody in the world. And, and everybody looked to them and thought, if anybody's going to heaven, they are. And Jesus said, nope. Nope, you've got to be better than them. Your righteousness has to exceed theirs. Now, in this last verse, I, I'm sure, think about you sitting there on that day, and Jesus says in verse 20, they're not going in. You're like, what are you talking about? And he starts giving you example after example after example of a righteousness 
that, that, that's going to qualify you. And you keep thinking, well, man, it's got to be higher than them. What is it this? Is it this? And he just keeps raising the bar and raising the bar and raising the bar. And in the last verse, he finally answers the question that's on everybody's mind. How good does a person have to be to get into heaven? That's his answer. You've got to be as good as God is. You've got to be as good as God is. Now, you know, this is, this is the bar. This is my, my, my kind of way to show the bar. The bar is down here. They thought the bar was high. They looked up to the scribes and Pharisees, and they didn't realize, man, the bar is way down here. And he keeps raising the bar and raising the bar and raising the bar, and finally we realize, oh, the bar is perfection. The bar is I have to be as good as God is. Now, shocking doesn't even, can't even explain what those people felt on that day. Because with one sentence, with one statement, he literally just eliminated all human moral standards. You can, you can sell everything you have and, and take a vow of chastity and poverty and move out to a monastery and, and live a life where you get up every day and don't do nothing but pray and fast, and, and, and that's not enough. You've got to be good as God is. So I don't care what religion's out there. They don't have a high enough standard. You've got to be good as God is. And, and, and let's be honest, if that's the standard, if the standard is absolute perfection, then who has any hope? of getting in. Scribes and Pharisees ain't going in. The people on the mountainside that day, they're not going in. You and I, if that's the, if that's the, 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 the bar, then you and I certainly don't qualify as well. Now, let me say this before I go any further. I think it's important to point out that Jesus is not creating a new standard. It's not that there was one standard in the Old Testament and Jesus is coming and creating a new one. No, the standard has always been perfect holiness. In Genesis 17:1, um, uh, God says to Abraham, Abraham was 99 years old, and God says to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That was, that was, that was the first man he picked out, the man of faith. He said, walk before me and be blameless. In the, Mo, in the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 18.13, it says this, You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. So was, even in the Old Testament, he's saying it over and over again, you've got to be blameless. You've got to be blameless. And then Jesus comes along, says he wants you to be perfect, and this standard is going to be repeated throughout the New Testament. For example, Paul, 2 Corinthians 7.1 says this, Therefore, having these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. James says in James 1.4, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So The Old Testament calls for perfection. The Gospels call for perfection. The epistles of the New Testament call for perfection. Now, here's the question. Despite all those commands to be perfect, to be blameless, here's the question. Is it possible? Is sinless perfection possible for a human being? 
Some people, by the way, would say, yes, absolutely. And their reasoning would go something like this, that Jesus just said, be perfect. And certainly, he would not require us to do something that's impossible. Therefore, it has to be possible for a human being to, be, to come to a point in their life where they're sinless. By the way, I stood right here, and I've had at least two men stand right here in front of me and tell me not only is it possible, they were walking in it. Now, that's an important question. Agree? Jesus said, be perfect. Is that what he means? Is it really possible that you and I can come to that point? No. Now, let me just go ahead and get that out of the way for you. No. 1 John 1, 8, I'll, just give you, I'll give you several scriptures. Let me just give you one. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's pretty clear, isn't it? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Let me read Romans 7. This is the Apostle Paul, by the way. I don't know about you, but he's way closer to perfection, I'm sure, than I am. This is, these are his words. He says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, and I end up doing the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So what Paul is saying is the law says don't lie. And I agree with the law. I don't want to lie. But then one day I find myself lying. I'm doing the things that I don't want to do. I agree it's wrong, but I still do it anyway. And he says this, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who doing it, but sin that dwells inside of me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and, ma and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members or dwells in my flesh. Three times. Paul says, I don't want to do these things, but there's this thing, this, this sin, this power that dwells in my flesh that keeps bringing me down. It keeps making me do the things I don't want to do. That's Paul. How about Jesus? Matthew 6, 11. We'll get to this in a couple weeks in the Lord's Prayer. They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. He said, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. Now that certainly doesn't mean that perfection is not possible, but Jesus is basically saying when you pray, pray for the forgiveness of your sins. That, that's pretty, I mean, that basically tells us it's always going to be an issue. I'll give you one more. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. A man asked Jesus one time, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? What is the, the command above all other commands? What's the one command that if you get up every day, you should make sure you do this one command? And Jesus said it is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind. Now folks, I'm not sure there's one person alive that does that for one second of, of one minute, of one hour of any day. 
that they absolutely love God with everything that's in their heart and everything that's in their mind, their emotions and their thoughts and their feelings. I don't know sure that anybody, we're not just, if you don't, and by the way, if you don't do that, you're walking in sin. See, there's people walking around think, well, I'm, I'm not sinning because I haven't committed adultery or I haven't killed anybody. That's what the Pharisees thought. But it's not just your actions, it's your feelings, it's your emotions, it's your thoughts. Is that really possible? No. No, it's not. In fact, let's go back to the Beatitudes. Just one more proof of that. Let's go back to the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you all remember what that means? The word poor there, there's different words, words in Scripture for poor. That means beggar poor. That's just not, hey, you know, I ain't got a lot of money to buy a new car. That means I got to sit on the side of the road and beg for my next meal. You see, Christians are beggarly poor. They come to God as beggars. They come to God saying, I, I got nothing. I got no righteousness. I got no, there's nothing good in my flesh, as Paul said. God have mercy on me. That's what a Christian is. A Christian knows they're sinners. In fact, the second thing is blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, that's what Christians do. We mourn over our sin. We know we sin and we don't like it. We don't make uh, friends with it. We don't accommodate it. We certainly don't twist Scripture to, to make it line up with our lifestyle. No, we hate it. We mourn over the fact that we're not righteous. And that's why we do the third thing. We hunger and we thirst for righteousness. Guys, you don't hunger and thirst for something you already got. And that's not talking about uh, an imputed righteousness from Christ. That's talking about walking it out every day and trying to be like Him and coming up short. Every day you want, you want to be better than you were. Christians hunger and thirst for that. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. By the way, we fail. We're sinners. We, we fail all the time. What do we do? What is our practice? Every Christian, I mean, if you're a Christian here today, you know what I'm talking about. Every time you fail, you come to Him. You confess your sins. God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I messed up. And Scripture says He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, here's the question. Is sinless perfection possible? No. Not as long as you're in this body. Not as long as you're in this body. It is not possible. By the way, that's why you need a Savior. That's why I need a Savior. I need someone who's lived the perfect life that can then cover me with that perfection. Who can I get credited with His perfection. Everything here is pointing to a Savior. And, and, and at this point, we might stop and say, well, that's, that's what Jesus means, Right? That's why this verse is here. He, he's teaching us that we can't do it. He's setting the bar so high so that you realize, oh man, I, I can never get to that. I need a Savior. Is that why that verse is here? To show us that, that we can't do it? That religion will never get you there and good works will never get you there? Is that why this verse is here? Well, let me say, that is certainly true. And I've heard some good sermons exactly like that <laughs> preached on Matthew 5.48. I read some this week saying that's what that means. That's not what it means. It's true, by the way. We do need a Savior. We can never get there. 
That's all true, but that is, in my opinion, that is not his point in the context of this sermon. And here's why. Because he's talking to people who are already saved. Read it again, Matthew 5.48, Therefore you must be perfect as your daddy is perfect. You should be perfect like your father's. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's not trying to say, you a bunch of unbelievers. That's not what he's talking about. These are people that are already saved. These are people that already have received Christ, that know Christ, that have the Spirit dwelling in them. And he's saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, this is not about salvation. It's about sanctification. It's about being made holy. I want to give you one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. This, this is, a, this is a, just an incredible verse. One of my favorite verses. This is Hebrews 10.14. And the writer of Hebrews says this, For by a single offering he, talking about Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now that is an incredible verse. He's already perfected those who are being sanctified. That's incredible. You see, if I died right now, my record is perfect. If I die right now, my record is perfect. I like to watch those cop shows. You know, they pull the guy over and they get their license and they go back and they get on the radio and type in their computer. Has he got any warrants? Folks, I ain't got no warrants. There's no warrants. There's nothing. There, there, there's nobody looking for me. God is not looking for me. Listen to Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He took every sin that I ever committed, every sin I ever will commit, he already knows, and he took it and he nailed it to the cross and it says, settled, taken care of covered I'm perfect one sacrifice he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified you see the fact is as I said if I died right now in his eyes positionally I am perfect because of Christ but the fact is I ain't dead yet and until I die and I'm living in this body there's a work of sanctification that has to be done. That word sanctify means to make holy. I, I'm continually being set apart. There's a work that has to go on before I cross over. That work is called sanctification. So here, here's where we find ourselves. Be perfect. Just as your heavenly Father is perfect, Christian. So on the one hand, we have the commands in the Old Testament, in the Gospel, in the Epistles, we have commands to be perfect. On the other hand, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Be perfect, but you can't be perfect. Be perfect, but you got sin in your life. And you'll always have sin in your life until He calls us home. How do you... How in the world do those two things juxtapose against one another? And, in, and, and the bigger question is, what do we do? Let me ask you a question. Should we pursue perfection if there's no way to get there? And, and, and why would God even want us to do that? Why would He want us to go after a goal that we can never reach? Well, I'm going to answer those questions for you. In 1855, they started uh, 
keeping records of the mile, how fast somebody could run a mile. And the first guy they, they, they timed, or the first guy they've got a record of, is in 1855, a guy by the name of Charles Westhall. He ran the mile in 4 minutes and 28 seconds. Now, almost 100 years go by, and in 1954, this guy named Charles Bannister got famous because he broke the 4-minute mile. He ran it in 3 minutes and 59 seconds. So he, he became world famous for that. Almost, what, 45 years later, a guy from Morocco, and that record kept going lower and lower and lower, and the last record that was set was uh, 24 years ago in 1999. Uh, it was 3 minutes and 34 seconds. So that record has not changed in 24 years. Nobody's broken it. Okay, so that, that tells you that's pretty close to being about as fast as you can run a mile, right? But what if I told you, guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start tomorrow. I'm going to start running a mile, and my goal is a one-minute mile. That's my goal. I'm going to run a one-minute mile. Now, what would you think? You'd think, okay, he's finally lost it, right? See, the fact is, that's impossible. It's never going to happen unless, you know, they you know, somehow fuse men with something. I don't know. But as long as men are men like they are right now, that record is, is, is we're never going to get to the one-minute mile. It's impossible. So what's the point? What would you say to somebody that just keeps chasing a goal that they can't? That, that's, that makes no sense, right? Why would you do that? But here's the thing, human beings don't work that way anyway, right? We don't, we don't try to get to a one-minute mile. Our goal is just to beat the last guy, right? If you go back and you look at all the records, I can tell you every single person that set a record, their whole goal was to beat the last guy. Here's the thing, when it comes to holiness, there is no last guy. There's just God. See, when it comes to holiness, there is no last guy. I don't look at the Pharisees. I don't look at this person or that person and say, all i got to do is beat them. No. There's just God and there's everybody else. See, the fact is, as long as God is God, the standard cannot be less than perfection. It just can't. God doesn't say, well, just get as close as you can. No. No, the standard is perfection. I, I know as he sat on that mountain that day, they, those people kept waiting. When's he going to stop? Is he going to stop it here? Is he going to stop it there? You know, they kept waiting. And he said, you've got to be as good as God is. That's the standard. Now, I close with this. When God calls us to perfection, God's not naive, okay? He knows that we're going to fail. He knows we're going to fall short. In fact, we will do it frequently, and some of us will do it quite pathetically. Okay? We're going to fail. He absolutely knows that. So here's my question. Why in the world would God command us to pursue perfection when He knows that in this life it's impossible? Why would He do that? Because He knows that the quest for, for perfection is not in vain. He knows that. See, as I'm, as I'm reaching for perfection, I'm going to fail. But let me tell you, there's going to be a lot of successes. I was thinking this week about a, a, a baseball. I was out at the baseball park the other day watching some of the kids, and I was, I was thinking about every batter that's ever stepped in, into and had an at-bat in baseball. They know they're not going to hit 1,000. Nobody does, right? You look at major leaguers. They don't hit 900. They don't hit 700. They don't hit 500. 
they very rarely hit 400. Most of them, if you're really, really good, 30-something percent of the time, you're successful. But let me tell you, when they step in against that pitcher at the next at bat, all that is forgotten. All they care about is now. What am I going to do this at bat? You see, that's what we do as Christians. It's not, I'm not walking in saying, oh, I can't do it. What about this situation? Can I love my neighbor now? Can I love my enemy now? Can I, turn the, can I turn the other cheek now? Can I succeed in this situation? See, there's going to be successes along the way. And, and folks, listen to me. I said earlier that the difference between a, a one-minute mile that's impossible and the difference in me being perfect is because a one-minute mile is unattainable. Listen, I will be perfect. It's coming. See, this is not an unattainable goal. In fact, not only is it attainable, it's absolutely guaranteed. Listen to the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3. Not that I have already obtained this, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, he's walking the road, and the goal is perfection. He sees it. And he said, I'm not, I'm not there yet, but I'm heading toward it. And it's coming. It's coming. He's calling me home. One day he's going to be perfect. See, it's foolish to think, as some people do, that just because we're imperfect people, that somehow exempts us from God's perfect standard. It doesn't. A.J. Gordon, who was a Baptist preacher back in the 1800s, said this, if the doctrine of sinless perfection is bad, the doctrine of contentment with sinful imperfection is even worse. That's really good. See, at least some of these people that believe it are going after it. The problem is the other people just sit, man, I'm, what's the point? I can never get there. I'm not even going to try. That's even worse. You don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Paul is, is pushing toward the prize. You see, here's the deal. Perfection is the standard. Direction is the test. Let me read, I'm going to leave that up here for a second. Perfection is the standard. The direction you're heading, that's the test. You see, our Father is perfect. And because He's perfect, our, His children are going to move in that direction of perfection. In this life, never going to get there. We're going to fail. We're going to keep failing. But there's going to be successes. There's certainly going to be successes. And our, the direction of our life should show us growing and growing and maturing and being changed, moving in that direction. And folks, I'm just going to tell you, Paul tells us in Corinthians to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. If you're not moving in that direction, if you're stalled out or if you're sliding backwards, you need to examine yourself because Christians are moving in the direction of perfection. I'm going to summarize it and say it like this, and we'll close. In our pursuit of perfect holiness that we will one day have in heaven, we should seek now to be as holy as a justified sinner can be. Let me read that again. I'm heading toward perfection. It's not only attainable, it's guaranteed. It's coming. So my goal right now should be to try to be in practice what I already I am in His eyes. To try to be in practice what I'm going to be when He calls me home. To try to be as holy as a justified sinner. And, and by the way, we don't know what the limits are in this life. We don't know how close we can get. We can't get there. 
but we can certainly get uh, closer. And there's always going to be victories to be attained. I close with two scriptures that I think summarize this journey to perfection so well. The first one is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see how it all just wraps up right there? How, do, how are we being transformed into His image from one glory to the next to the next? By the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God who dwells in us. And then I close with 1 John 3, 2-3. through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And listen, and everyone who has that hope purifies himself just as He is pure. See, if that's your hope, then you try to be as perfect just as He is perfect. You purify yourself just as He is pure. You, you try to walk in holiness just as He is holy. This is what Christians do. Let's pray. Father, Lord, God, thank You for chapter 5. I thank You, Lord, what an incredible, incredible journey the last six months have been. I'm, I'm so looking forward to, to the next two, but before we leave it, Lord, I just pray. I pray for sanctification in my own life and in the body of those here at River of Life. God, every day I pick up the news. Every day I, I see the darkness getting darker and darker and darker in our culture, in our society. And every day I, we have the opportunity for our light to shine brighter and brighter and brighter. God, help us to be the Christians of chapter 5. Help us to be the Christians of the Beatitudes, the salt and light of the world. Help us to, to be moving toward perfection, knowing knowing that we're never going to get there, knowing we're going to fail, sometimes miserably. But, oh, Lord, there's going to be successes along the way. There's going to be times that I, I turn the, the other cheek when I think, well, where did that come from? There's going to be times when I, when I love my enemies and I'm just like, where did that come from? God, it's your Spirit, and we give Him and you glory for what He is doing in our life. We thank you, Father. We love you for all that you do for us and for who you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info rolcrawfordville.com We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.